This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 40 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, November the 16th. First, I talk to Peter Doyle the Managing Director and CEO of coal mining company Montem Resources, which is now listing on the ASX. Montem is the only junior miner with assets in Canada, and it's attracted lots of Australian investors. We talk about the business and the coal industry, a topical issue at the moment, when the world is focusing on renewables. And then I talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver, looking at what impact the US midterms will have on the market. But first, let's talk to Peter Doyle. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, Peter Doyle is uh, CEO of uh, Montem Resources. Uh, tell us about the, the big issue at the moment is the declining price of coal and the current US-China trade tensions. What's your view about that? Well... Firstly, I'd like to correct you on the on the first statement. The price of coal's rocketing up and has been over the last two years. So um, thermal coal prices right now are at um, at at historic kind of highs, uh, and met coal price for premium hard coking coals over two hundred and twenty dollars, which uh, long term kind of Baseline prices used to be below $100, moved up to over $150 over the last decade, and now look like 
you know, we're, we're potentially seeing a new baseline above 150 and, and approaching 200. And met coal markets are very, very strong at the moment. But what is it? What about the impact of the U.S.-China trade tensions? Um, we're not seeing an impact in met coal markets at all um, at the moment. Obviously, if it starts to impact China's domestic steel production, um, then potentially the 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 trade war, if you like, uh, could have negative impact on on steel markets. But right at the moment, there's certainly not. Steel margins for steel production are the the highest they've been in over a decade. In I think uh, it's a decade in in the U.S. and indeed on the international market, China uh, and and the other Asian producers of of steel for export are seeing really strong margins at the moment, which are driving obviously the the strong coal prices. Uh... Mon- Montem Resources has obviously connections with Canada. What, what if any, is Montem Resources' connection to Australia? Sure. So Montem is, uh, was originally set up by Australian investors to invest in um, coking coal mines in Canada. Um, in 2016, we purchased the first set of assets in Canada um, called the Chinook Properties. These are funded in part by Australian investors. I um, joined the company halfway through or in September 2017 and we sought to bring the the company's sort of asset base to Australian a broader Australian audience of investors and that's what we're doing right now we're in the process of listing the company on the Australian Stock Exchange at the moment we're a publicly unlisted Australian based company Um, we believe that Australian investors are far more sophisticated and familiar with investing in coal than, than others around the world. Uh, we're finding great support for the company here in Australia with the investor, investors and look forward to a, a positive announcement about our IPO in the in the very near term. Well, uh, tell us about the IPO. Sure. So we're seeking to raise a minimum $15 million Australian dollars um, to fund the company such and bring forward uh, a number of our projects. The premier project is the Tent Mountain project, and I'll tell you a bit more about that, where we we have uh, opened the IPO some time ago with the belief that we would get the $15 million very rapidly. Uh, we've, we've faced headwinds in the market, although we've had a very positive last uh, two weeks. And as I said before, we believe that we'll reach that minimum in the, in the coming days and be able to announce that in the market close the IPO and get started on the engineering works at Mountain. Uh, does Mountain Resources have any plans to do any mining in Australia? No, Leon. We, we're specifically um, set up to look at purchasing and developing assets in North America um, and specifically Metcoal assets. So at this stage, we have no plans to be in Australia, um, but you know, we we wouldn't discount it in the in the distant future. Obviously, there's fertile grounds for met coal up in Queensland and down in the Illawarra. Although we believe the much better priced assets are in Canada and North America. Now, uh, how will the funds from your IPO be used? So we we have a two year program to bring Tent Mountain back to ready to construct status. Tent Mountain is unique in that it retains a, um, an old mine permit. The mine is still registered. Uh, the mine is in Alberta, which is adjacent to British Columbia. It uh, still retains its mine permit. 
that uh, permit gives us some advantage in getting the mine restarted. Essentially, it's a mine restart. The mine shut down in the mid-1980s and has been passed from various owners from one to the other who were all interested in other assets that the company had. And really, they're orphan assets. We believe that the $15 million will be spent primarily on exploration and engineering works to bring the Tent Mountain Bankable Feasibility Study to prove that the to, to the invest, investors and the board that, that a, a financing decision should be made. That will be produced by the middle of 2019. In conjunction with that will be a, an application to the government to amend the current permits and licences to allow mining to restart. We believe that will be achieved sometime in the first half of 2020 and mining will will um, be underway by the back half of 2020. With first coal sales at this moment forecast to be in the latter half of 2020. That's the majority of the spend. The, the There will be other monies spent on our other projects. We have four active projects which have all been mined before. Um, so we, we hope to use some of the funds raised from the IPO to prove up three of the other projects to uh, pre-feasibility level over the next two years. Uh, where's the expected export market? So the Canadian, um, the western coast of exports, sorry, the west coast exports of Canadian met coal is, is a major market. Um, there's really only two participants in that market at the moment. They're dominated by uh, a, a, a national champion company in Canada called Tech Resources. They're the second largest exporter of um, coking coal. They sell the majority of their products to North Asia, so Japan, Korea, Taiwan, China. Um, and they also sell products into South America, Europe, um, and other parts of, of the Atlantic coastlines. But the majority of the coal is expected to go to the North Asian clients. We, we very strongly covet um, a relationship with the Japanese steel mills who really are keen to diversify away from Queensland-dominated coal supply for their, for their blast furnaces. We know that many Japanese trading companies and steel companies have a mandate to go and um, diversify their geographies of where, where they're getting their coal supply from, and we think that um, puts us really in a, in a box seat there in Canada um, for exports into North Asia. Well, if you're talking about Japan, are we also talking about South Korea? Yes, absolutely. And Leon, we, you know, POSCO and Hyundai are very big producers of blast furnace steel and, and they will be prospective uh, customers of ours for sure. Uh, what about India? I mean, that's, that's a growing market, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, India is, is a rapidly growing uh, Mekong market. But from the west coast of, of Canada, we would see that we would display some of the Queensland coal going into North Asia that will inevitably get dragged into into the Indian market. So it will be a market for us, for sure. We're not ignoring it. We're building links with the Indian steel mills at the moment um, to make sure they know we are there. We're, we're at a very big conference next week with the Indian steelmakers to to tell them about Montem. But realistically, it's probably our furthest market. If you look at the globe and you look where Vancouver is and you look where the inbound ports are in, in India, it's a long way in a ship. Now, uh, how does Montem differentiate itself from other competitors? I mean, it's a pretty crowded market. Well, I think it's crowded at the at the greenfield space. Um, 
I, I think that in public markets, it's actually quite hard to find development companies who have real assets that have permits and are ready to, um, ready to, you know, essentially build. The advantage that we have over all our competitors is our existing uh, permit, and we, you know, plan to leverage that obviously um, and get started as quickly as possible. A two-year time horizon to first coal is is quite unusual um and i think that's our main differentiator the other the other is that we're mining people um now that's not to say that others aren't but we have built a, a very strong and independent board full of members who have a significant history of, of coal mining both in australia and canada um and i think that our backers certainly understand the coal space um we're very much planning on becoming a, a major coal producer. Um, I think we can build our, our volume quite significantly beyond 10 Mountain over the next five to 10 years from our existing asset base. And we'll seek to grow that through acquisition as well over time if the right acquisition opportunity presents itself. Now, Peter, final question. The world is now moving towards renewable energy. What is your response to that as a coal company? Oh, look, I think that as stewards in this industry, we have to be responsible and, and seek to um, investigate and invest in lower emissions technologies wherever they're possible. Um, the cold hard truth is, Leon, you can't make steel without cold. The, the blast furnace um, requires coke to make it work, and blast furnace steel accounts for approximately 75% of the globe's production of steel. We are very keen to partner with the, the, the most um, efficient and responsible companies in the world with our supplies of coal, and, and hence we're aiming uh, for our markets to be in those, those very modern blast furnaces found in Japan and Korea and the new builds in India and, and um, Southeast Asia and Europe. Well, Peter, Sorry. it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. All right, Leon, thank you. Thank you. And now let's talk to economist... Shane Oliver. Well, Shane Oliver, the midterms are over, and it uh, was exactly as uh, many forecast. Uh, the uh, the Democrats uh, retook the House, and markets somehow opened predictably higher, <laughs> and have been doing ever well ever since. I mean, what's your what's your view about this? Uh, I guess to some degree there was a sense of relief that the midterms were over, and yes, the Democrats took the House, but they didn't get the Senate. So there was some talk about a blue wave where the Democrats take the House and the Senate. Um, we've seen this in the past uh, with the Republicans. I think if you go back to the 1990s in protest against uh, Clinton and also to some degree um, uh, in the Obama years where um, Republicans would get control of both houses in contrast to the president being a Democrat. So, but we didn't see a, a blue wave. <laughs> and so the market thought, well, OK, They've got the House, but they didn't get the Senate. In fact, it looks like the Republicans have increased their um, their seats in the Senate. Um, and so consequently, I think the market said, well, yeah, there's no, there's no great problem here. Um, obviously, there will be issues with Trump getting through some of his legislative agenda, particularly in terms of further tax cuts. But I don't know whether the market thought those tax cuts, additional tax cuts, were going to happen anyway. And in the meantime... The Democrats just having the House alone can't wind back the tax cuts or the, the regulation and other moves that Trump's done over the last couple of years. So consequently, the market was reasonably happy. This, I guess, is seen as, a, as an outcome that 
sort of takes the edge off radical policy changes and therefore the market was quite comfortable with that. I guess, uh, I mean, my experience, and I'm sure your experience of the market, is that markets hate surprises. So the fact that it went to, as predicted, uh, went down quite well with the market. That's right. We had seen surprises <clears throat> over the last couple of years with the Brexit uh, outcome and Donald Trump's election in 2016, where the polls and the betting markets were completely wrong. Um, you can debate how wrong they were, but they were wrong in terms of the uh, the final outcome. This time around, there wasn't any surprises. It was in line with what um, the polls and the betting agencies, betting markets had indicated, and the market was quite happy that there was no surprises. Uh, consequently, it's uh, I guess the initial reaction has been a positive one in share markets. The other aspect, of course, is that once the midterms are out of the way, historically, the US share market has rallied after each of the midterms since 1946 over the subsequent 12 months. That doesn't mean you don't have corrections and rough rides along the way, um, but historically, the US share market has gained over the subsequent 12 months from midterm elections in the post-war era. So I, I guess that that observation may be at the back of some investors' minds as well. Right. Now, uh, in ter- and in terms of tax, I mean, the tax cuts have already gone through, so investors are quite happy with that. That's right, and those tax cuts will remain. There was some talk by Trump, of course, going into the midterm elections that he would offer another round of tax cuts. I guess that was uh, politics aimed at um, shoring up Republican vote going into the midterms. Um, but the market never really, I think, factored in those additional tax cuts anyway. And so the fact that the, the the last year's tax cuts remain in place and will remain in place because the Democrats don't have control of the Senate, the Senate is a positive thing. Right. OK. Now, now uh, one of the issues is that what happens with the Fed after this? I mean, uh, the Fed kept rates on hold and they've signalled another rate rise in December. Do you expect this will make any difference to the Fed? I don't think this really makes any difference to the Fed. The Fed just looks at the economic indicators as they come out. Those indicators suggest the US economy is still very strong, um, very tight conditions in the labour market. We saw um, the Fed meet last week and their post-meeting statement indicated that they remain upbeat on the outlook, with all of which is consistent with the Fed raising interest rates again when they meet in December. So the story for the last little while now has been that every three months the Fed hikes rates. They've certainly been doing that all through this year. Um, it looks like they're on track again to do that uh, in December when they meet. But they're, again, they're, they're stressing that uh, it's appropriate to do gradual hikes. They're not going to accelerate the pace of tightening, but there's no sign of a pause either. Uh, some economists have noted that uh, with uh, Trump losing control of the House and uh, things getting a bit more het up politically for him and in the period ahead, he will need the economy singing and doing quite well in 2020. That's right. The focus for the president after the midterms then shifts to the to his potential re-election in the in the next two years. So he can't do anything that upsets the economy. I, I guess there is one theory. Well, this might make him more radical. He might he might ramp up the populism. Um, yeah, ramp up the pressure on China. And you can do that to some degree, but by the same token, you don't want to do it so much that it actually damages the economy going into 2020. Because don't forget, this economic recovery is already a very long one. Uh, at some point next year, I think around mid-next year, it becomes the longest post-war recovery on record, 
post-war economic expansion on record. Um, and therefore, some would say, well, it's due for a downturn somewhere out there. And you've got a consensus of, consensus of economists saying, well, maybe that's going to be in 2020. Now, the last thing Trump wants is an economic recession in 2020, because historically, uh, when there is a recession on, the president uh, loses power. <laughs> he doesn't win the election. That's been the historical record. So uh, he, he will want to keep the economy doing as well as it can, which means not doing things that upset it, which I think ultimately means he has to strike some sort of deal with the Chinese on the trade front, not necessarily later this month when he meets uh, Xi Jinping in Argentina on the sidelines of the G20, but sometime in the next six months, I think he has to get that issue back under control and get those tariffs back down. And likewise, I think he has to do other things to try and keep the economy going, which could point to out of interest and infrastructure package um, at some point in the next, uh, I don't know, I guess the next um, six, 12 months as well is one way to do that. It, it's known the Democrats want to do something on infrastructure. Trump wants to as well. It was part of his campaign platform. That's one area where they might be able to compromise. Time, time will tell on that one because there's some difficult issues about how to fund it. But that's certainly one area that Trump could go down to try and help keep the economy going through 2020. Well, that would suggest it would have to be a bipartisan arrangement, wouldn't it? It would have to be a, a bipartisan arrangement. It would have to pass through the lower house. So he would need to strike a deal with the Democrats, which, of course, means that he doesn't want to... He, he can't alienate them too much. If he alienates them too much... Um, then it's going to be hard to get any deal with them through. I, I guess the sticking point may, may be how to fund it. I think Trump would prefer to fund it with debt. The Democrats might prefer to fund it with uh, tax hikes, you know, raising the corporate tax rate back up again or something like that, um, which Trump's not going to stomach either. So that may be a sticking point, but time will tell. They, they could possibly come up with some arrangement like we've seen in Australia where the bulk of the infrastructure spending is undertaken by the private sector but the federal government sort of underpins it in some way, um, or there's a de uh, an asset swap program where they, they sell off existing assets and use that to finance new infrastructure spending. So there's different ways you can do it, but um, at the moment I think that's probably one area where they could possibly compromise, but time will tell. Uh, well, I guess infrastructure would be the important driver of any continued bull run, wouldn't it? It could well be. Uh, I mean, this is the big issue here. The tax cut impact will start to fade as we go through next year. And there's talk of a fiscal cliff in 2020, which is when um, some of the tax measures that were announced in the tax cut package late last year expire. I think some of the personal tax cuts um, start to expire and they revert to higher rates. Um, and so come 2020, US fiscal policy will go from being stimulatory to being contractionary. And, of course, if we have a program of infrastructure spending, then that's one way to offset that um, going forward, to offset that uh, fiscal cliff that might occur in 2020 and then could threaten the economy. Uh, another question is whether the Democrats would spark any resolution to the trade war in China. Well, that's an interesting one. I, I, I personally don't think that the change of control of the House um, has much impact on that. The trade issue is still in the hands of the president, um, i.e. Trump in this case. And, you know, the Democrats are uh, you know, proving to be quite tough on China as well. I mean, this is the, the thing in the US that um, anti-China sentiment seems to have ramped up on both sides of politics. You know, maybe Trump was the catalyst for that, but uh, it does seem to have ramped up on both sides of politics. So 
to some degree, the, the Democrats are also wanting to be seen to being tough on China on this front because it seems to resonate with the US electorate for yeah, whether it's right or wrong. It, it, that's the way it is in America at the moment. But I think at the end of the day, um, it's in neither party's interest to sort of let this issue fester on for too long because ultimately it could damage the US economy. Um, in Trump's case, that, that would certainly work against his re-election. And uh, House Democrats might actually push back on the president's trade agenda in regard to Europe and Japan, wouldn't they, who are traditional US allies? That's right. They could on that front. Um, but it's interesting to note, I think, that Trump decided sometime around the middle of the year that he can't have a trade war with everybody. And so he started to cut deals. He obviously signed a, a new trade deal with Korea, um, signed a new trade deal with his North American uh, partners, Mexico and Canada, um, and, of course, open negotiations with Japan and Europe. So one gets the impression there that he's not anti-trade per se. He just wants fairer trade in, in terms of what he sees fairer trade as. Uh, so if anything, yeah, I, I would tend to agree that the Democrats would probably um, side with the view that, well, we don't want to trade war with Europe and Japan – yeah, let's keep them. Let's keep them as our friends. So I think that's probably a positive. But I get the impression that Trump was heading in that direction anyway. Well, Shane, I thought it'd be fascinating to watch. And thank you very much for your time. It's my my pleasure, Liam. So what's happening in the news? Well, while oil prices have dropped to their lowest level in over eight months amid fears about a slowdown in demand, OPEC is inching closer to a cut in oil output on the back of those plummeting prices and signs of a coming global oversupply. Saudi officials have announced that they would slash exports unilaterally next month. This coincides with the broader OPEC alliance debating, but failing to agree, to a collective production cut. Russia, the world's largest producer, is sending mixed signals. Now, until now, Russia has moved in lockstep on such matters with OPEC, and has done that for more than two years. But now Russia's oil minister, Alexander Novak, said he was open to crude production cuts if the coalition reaches a consensus. And he said Russia would adhere to any decision it makes. At the same time, however, he said Russian production had, in his words, reached a certain level where we have stabilised and we will be fluctuating around that level in coming months. Now, all these reports follow Saudi Arabia, Russia and other producers meeting in Abu Dhabi last weekend to debate whether reductions of about 1 million barrels a day might be necessary next year. A decision is expected at an OPEC meeting next month, and that will have an impact on global oil prices. And US President Donald Trump has pinned a recent decline in stocks on Democrats. He's blamed it on the possibility of investigations by House committees. The prospect of presidential harassment by the Dems is causing the stock market big headaches, Trump tweeted. Now, True, the stock market has been on rough footing lately and stocks have declined, but most analysts attribute the issues to major companies signalling weaker-than-expected future earnings, the Fed increasing rates in December, as expected, and continued trade war fears, rather than the results of the midterm elections, in which Democrats won control of the House and the GOP held the Senate, as expected. Now, analysts say the likelihood of a gridlock with a divided Congress is a neutral result for stocks and it's likely to have little impact. In other words, the midterms are a non-event for the market. Now, Australian wage growth increased by 0.6% the September quarter, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and this means wages 
have been growing at 2.3% over the past year. Now, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, that is the highest growth rate in over three years since September 2015. And the number of loans being issued to owner-occupiers has plunged to the lowest level in five years, according to the latest housing finance figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The slide is due in large part to traditional banks moving abruptly away from the property market due to stringent APRA regulations and the fallout from the Royal Commission. Loans for building and new home purchases fell 3.8% over September to $29.1 billion. That's 13.5% lower than this time last year. First home buyer activity also retreated following acute improvements in 2017. They were down 2% over the quarter and down 3.7% compared with a year ago. Loans to owner-occupiers are at their lowest value since July 2015 at $19.37 billion. And investors are also feeling the strain with lending dipping 5% over the quarter. It's now 18.2% below the level recorded a year ago. And Australian businesses aren't as upbeat as they were a year ago. NAB's latest monthly survey showed sentiment among Australian businesses declined in October, with business conditions slipping to a reading of 12, that's down from 14. And the level of confidence fell to 4, that's down from 6. And that's a 2018 low. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has confirmed that plans to sign the free trade agreement with Indonesia have been shelved. Now he says there's no burning timetable to get it done. Indonesia reportedly demanded last week that Australia dump its consideration of relocating its Israeli embassy to Jerusalem before it signs a deal. The Prime Minister says it was not his government that tied the free trade agreement to the embassy move. And the Morrison government is rolling out a cheaper loans plan for small businesses. The money will be made available to smaller banks and non-bank lenders over the coming years through a new Australian Business Securitisation Fund. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says this will allow these institutions to lend the money to small businesses at a lower cost than what is currently available. The new fund will be administered by the Australian Office of Financial Management. The coalition is also encouraging banks to create an Australian Business Growth Fund that would help small businesses access longer-term equity funding. Now, the Business Growth Fund would be following in the lead of similar funds internationally, including one in the United Kingdom. And in a significant development... Woodside Petroleum Chief Executive Peter Coleman says Australian politicians should work towards a global carbon tax. Now, that is a major reversal from the company's stance several years ago, when its then-Chief Executive Don Volte campaigned against the Gillard Government's emissions pricing scheme. Now, Mr Coleman sits on the board of the Business Council of Australia, and the council was another very vocal critic of Australia's previous carbon tax. Now, Mr Coleman says he won't be trying to change the council's stands, but what it does mean is the council will be having some, let's say, awkward conversations. And the federal court has refused to approve a $35 million penalty for Westpac, despite the bank admitting it broke responsible lending laws. And the court said it was doing that because Westpac and the Australian Securities and Investments Commission couldn't work out what it was about. In a highly critical judgment, Justice Nye Perham said, and I quote, admirable ingenuity had been applied by ASIC and Westpac's lawyers to, in his words, gloss over the very real differences which exist between them on the interpretation of this part of the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. And he said, because the parties do not actually agree on what section 128 of the Act requires, they are unable to agree on how many of the respondents' loans were made in contravention of it. 
And he said, this also makes it very difficult to judge the appropriateness of the proposed penalty of $35 million. Now, Coles aims to take market share away from the independent retailers like IGA and Harris Farm Markets, and it's targeting rich, young professionals in upmarket suburbs. And it's doing that by opening a new line of smaller convenience stores across the country. And these stores are radically different to what shoppers are used to in supermarkets. And they're being opened to meet the growing demand from urban shoppers in high-density areas. Now, the first of these stores will open later this year in Surrey Hills in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. And more stores are set to open in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland over the next five years. And they'll trade under the Coles local banner. Now, the new stores will have a full, fresh and packaged grocery offer with up to 1,500 grocery items not available in larger stores. And there'll be a focus on health foods, artisan and vegan products. And former Liberal Treasurer Peter Costello has been reappointed as Chair of Australian Sovereign Wealth Fund for another five years. Mr Costello will now remain Chairman of the multi-billion dollar Future Fund until 2024. Mr Costello helped set up the fund, which manages money to pay for the future superannuation payments of retired civil servants, in 2006 when he was Treasurer in the Howard Government. He joined its board in 2009 and became Chair in 2014. And during that time, the fund's investments have more than doubled from $67.6 billion to $148.8 billion. Still, opposition Treasury spokesman Chris Bowen blasted the coalition for not consulting Labor about Mr Costello's appointment. And according to Mr Bowen, this was entirely inappropriate ahead of the election. And Rabobank's Global Wine Quarterly has found that Australian wine exports in the first half of 2018 were up by 12.4% in volume and 19.3% in value, with China and the UK behind much of the strong performance. Now, Rabobank said bulk wine exports exhibited the strongest growth, up 31% compared to the first half of 2017, and bottled wine export growth was found to be stagnant. Now, ANZ is planning big changes to the way it assesses and checks mortgage loan applications. In what will be the toughest change introduced by major lenders following the end of the real estate boom, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, ANZ will be going carefully over applicants' income and it plans to introduce sophisticated credit checks. Applicants will have to provide all the relevant financial documentation and there will be third-party verification changes. Third-party agencies will check on applicants' credit card, home, personal and car loan debts. Mortgage brokers will also have to provide enhanced verification about applicants into income and rental expenses, and that includes any changes to their financial circumstances, such as, for example, retirement. And this will allow the bank to ascertain whether applicants failed to list other debts on their loan applications or whether amounts owing were misrepresented. And elders' shares have surged after the company posted strong annual results and an annual return on capital of more than 24%. ASX listed elders' underlying earnings before interest and tax came in at $74.6 million. That's up 5% on the previous year. And another agribusiness, Rural Co., also defied the drought. It lifted its underlying net profit after tax at $28.8 million for the year to September 30. And that pushed its revenue up 5% on the previous year to $1.9 billion. And HealthScope has received a takeover offer from Canadian asset management giant Brookfield Capital Partners worth up to $4.5 billion. And that puts pressure on Ben Gray's private equity firm BGH Capital to respond with a higher offer, or it will miss out on getting the private hospital operator. The HealthScope board said it would reject the request of due diligence by BGH. Brookfield had offered $2.45 and a simultaneous scheme of arrangement representing a total value of $2.58. BGH 
renewed its $2.36 a share offer in October after the board knocked back its first approach, which came in April. And in a statement released to the market on Monday, Hellscope said BGH's offer was significantly less attractive than the Brookfield proposal. And in another bad piece of news for BGH, Navitas shares fell this week after the adult education provider rejected another takeover offer from BGH, saying the offer price had remained the same and the terms and conditions were also similar. Navitas last month rebuffed the private equity firm's offer but said it was open to talks. But in a statement on Monday, the company said the offer undervalued the company and it now says its board is exploring a transaction with a number of other parties. And finally, the owner and publisher of a New Zealand Business Weekly newspaper and website says he is a billionaire-backed consortium that's keen to buy the Australian Financial Review. Or failing that, Fairfax Media's Kiwi Assets. Todd Scott, who purchased the National Business Review in 2012 via a management buyout from New Zealand rich lister Barry Coleman, said he's part of a consortium which is looking to test Nine Entertainment's appetite for selling the Australian Financial Review. Should Fairfax shareholders vote in favour of the merger with the Australian free-to-air broadcaster next Monday. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with American entrepreneur Tim Leatherman. And 35 years ago, he set up a company manufacturing a toolkit and multi-tool kits. And the business is churning them out. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care. Have a great week. Be good to one another. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.